said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Three things that Jesus said. Deny self. Take up your cross. Follow me. And we can change the world. And he set the pace. All right, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. In my Bible, it's uh, page 1,000. I don't know why I do that every week. I'm, it's helping somebody, though. I, it's got to be. 1,044. All right, so if you're new to your Bible, it's going to be uh, more than halfway over. And it's the third Gospel. Luke chapter 9, verse 18 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, underneath the seat of the middle aisle, there are some stacks of Bibles there. You are welcome to use those as we worship together today during the sermon part of our worship. And uh, you can actually have that Bible and take it with you. All right. Once you get there, we're going to read this together. Whether you're reading on the screen or out of your Bible or out of your smartphone or app or whatever. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 18 through 27. Here we go. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to... Thank you for the gathering of your church today. I thank you for Transit Church and for those families and individuals that are represented right before me. I thank you for this opportunity to, over the succession of a few weeks, talk about discipleship, what it means to follow you. And Lord, we know from our study that this is a lifelong endeavor. And I pray that as we conclude this series today that you would help us without uh, without any doubt of, of what you're calling us to when, it, when you call us to be your disciples. Help us to understand the mechanics of it. Help us to understand 
the, the call of it. Help us to understand the cost. We pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. In his Christian classic, The Cost of Discipleship, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer spells out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Among the most quoted parts of his book are Bonhoeffer's distinction between cheap and costly grace and his thoughts on discipleship and the cross. He writes this. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Here, here's Bonhoeffer's point. It's an excellent book, and there are several people that have written about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, just his life and his commitment to advance God's kingdom uh, during World War II. His point is this. Salvation comes to us freely by the great grace of God. You don't have to work for it at all. You simply have to trust. Trust in the person and work of Jesus. But Bonhoeffer helps us know very clearly that there is a cost to salvation. Oftentimes we come to faith willingly accepting God's grace, knowing that it's free, knowing that I don't have to work for it. But what we don't bargain for when we set out on our journey with Jesus oftentimes is the cross. When Jesus calls us to be his disciples, there is a corresponding call to lay down our lives and to follow him. So we're in a series called Disciple, and the intent of this series is to lay out very simply what it means to follow Jesus. This is our fifth and final sermon in this series. Discipleship is an important topic for all of us that call ourselves Christians. Uh, we've talked about a lot in regards to being a disciple, but just to uh, refresh you on a few of the basics. The root word disciple simply means student, pupil. It's one who learns, primarily learning from a master. The word disciple is not a Christian word. It's adopted by Christianity. You, uh, throughout the ages of the, the world, anyone that was a master at something can be said to have disciples, followers who are learning the craft, learning the skill um, that, that the master has gained and basically uh, trying to mimic what he does. And so in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, uh, we have pictures of disciples. The prophets had disciples. It was called the school of the prophets, where a person that was gifted of God to uh, speak oracles on his behalf really were under the tutelage of those uh, formidable prophets that we see in all the Old Testament. John the Baptist in the New Testament is called the, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And John came with the message of repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. And John the Baptist had disciples, people following him. And of course, the most uh, vivid example of a, uh, a master with his disciples is Jesus himself, as he called those 12 young men from various walks of life to lay down all that they were doing, to leave their families, and to simply follow him. So Jesus modeled the making of disciples amongst these, uh, these first 12 followers. And 
Uh, we could say a lot about what we see in Scripture in regards to that. He walked with them. He, he really lived with them day in and day out in the intimates, the intimate details of what are their li- whatever their lives were like. They got to glean about who he was as a person and what he had come to do. And then, of course, he dies on the cross. He, he resurrects from the dead. And before he ascends back into eternity to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, he gives his disciples, those people that he had spent three years with and allowed to know him intimately, he gave them uh, a command that they were to likewise go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that really was our entry point in this series, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 16 through, through 20, where Jesus in his authority, gave that authority to his closest followers and said, uh, I want you to not only continue being my disciple, following me, doing all that you've seen me do, but I want you to go and find those who have yet to hear about me and my kingdom and make disciples of them as well. We can sum up all that we've said in these last four weeks with, the, with these words, all of us who call ourselves Christians are called to be disciples. In fact, we're called to be disciples, followers of Jesus, before we're called to simply be a Christian. God welcomes us into a relationship with him. And today, really, the focus of my message is the relationship that God calls us to comes at a cost. And we find that primarily in this passage of scripture that I just read. Right up front, Jesus says that the cost of discipleship is actually the cost of suffering. So when we sign on a dotted line to follow Jesus, he's calling us into a relationship that will at some point end in suffering. We see that, we see that in verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so a little background to to. To hear in the, in the previous verses, Peter had just confessed Jesus as the Messiah. And as we've said before, this marked a, a pivotal point in Jesus' ministry. It marked a pivotal point in these close friends of Jesus walking with him. This passage likely comes about 10 months before Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so before this, what would have happened is these disciples would have spent the past two years following Jesus in the intimate details of his life, literally listening to Jesus, listening to his sermons, learning from his teaching. They would have learned about repentance, what it means to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. They would have learned about what faith in Jesus really means. They would have learned like sermons, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, what what character in God's kingdom was supposed to be like, as opposed to however they had been taught in their families. They would have understood about God and his kingdom. And so this passage here that we've just read is uniquely transitional because Jesus turns the corner. He reveals to them that, yes, life in my kingdom is different than the life that you live. But the life in my kingdom is is such that it's totally different than any life you've lived to this point. To be first, you have to be last. It's really an upside down kingdom. The way up is down to lose your life. To live your life to the fullest rather that you have to lose it 
and that to, re- to really live your life, it's going to have a little bit of hardship. That to follow me, follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself, die daily and follow me. And that really is what verse 22 is conveying here. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Jesus is saying, firstly, that he himself would suffer and be rejected. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, I mean, this caused great, great problems for Peter. Peter didn't want to hear those words coming out of Jesus mouth because this this sort of tainted the picture that Peter had of of the Messiah that he wanted. Peter wanted a warrior Messiah that was going to come in, amass an army, overthrow the Romans, um, create a kingdom, create the, you know, the land of Israel all over again, rule and reign and go on with life. And he, being a principal uh, friend of Jesus, would be a proponent of this of this kingdom. And so what Jesus does here is he tears down Peter's notion of what the Messiah is, but he also tears down Peter's notion of what a disciple is. He, he breaks Peter's idea of what it simply means to follow him. I think Peter was was uh, was. Was willing to go the, the next step of, of suffering for Jesus, but I don't know if Peter actually knew that it was going to be to this extent. And so what Jesus does here in this in this passage is is starts this unfolding revelation for his disciples that. That like Jesus suffered and was rejected, they would be called to suffer and be rejected as well. And he does that in three, three simple, three simple lines. Verse 23 says, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We're going to spend most of our time here today on these, on this one verse and the three things that really Jesus is saying. If you want to be my disciple, this is the cost of discipleship. Firstly, he says you have to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Jesus is not saying you have to give up some luxury item like uh, you can't use your washing machine anymore. You got to wash those dishes by hand. I was in the I deployed a desert storm as a young lieutenant and uh, I washed my I had two uniforms for seven months. I washed my clothes once a week for seven months, these two uniforms. And when I got back, the one thing that I wanted to buy was a washing machine. I didn't have a washing machine at that time, but I said, Lord God, I cannot I cannot wash my clothes anymore. He's not asking you to give up something that, you know, an item like that that you might need. He's not asking you to to go to some desert land, take up take up a monastic life of um, an ascetic lifestyle where you're you don't sleep on your cushy bed. You sleep on rocks. He's not asking you to, to deny yourself uh, meals during the day and you know fast for a, a, a lifetime. He's not asking you to do any of that, although Jesus at some point may call you to that. That's not what his point is here. He's actually asking his disciples, commanding them to do something far greater than that. If you want to follow me, he says, you have to take yourself off of the throne of your life. You have to give up command of the the center of gravity of of where your worship lies to take it off of yourself and instead give it to me. Place it on me. Shift your spiritual center of gravity off of yourself back to a worship of me. And really, this gets back to the very beginning, because 
At the root, denying ourselves unveils the sin of selfishness. Sin causes us to be self-centered, shifting our hearts from God back to ourselves. And we see this from the very beginning. Um, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, when they did the thing that God said not to do, Adam and Eve were literally thinking about themselves. They were thinking about satisfying their own desires, their own needs, their own wants. And if you would just pause and think about every sin that you've committed in your life, at the center of what you've done, when you've done it, it's had self as the initiator of that thing that you've done. You, you've decided to do this because you wanted it, you thought you needed it. To, to satisfy yourself at that moment, this is what you needed to do. Um, if we would go forward just a chapter or so right here in, in Luke or the, the other account that has it is, is Mark chapter 10, uh, the disciples have, you know, have, they, they've lived through this, uh, this passage that Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, but they still don't get it quite yet. And James and John, are having a discussion with each other, and then they approach Jesus. James and John, they call the sons of thunder. It makes me think they had a lot of, you know, they had a lot of fight in them. Okay, so they come to Jesus, and they ask Jesus a simple question. They say, Lord, um, can we sit at your left and your right hand when you come into your kingdom? And so they had, uh, they sort of understood that Jesus was going to leave and go and have a, a greater existence in his kingdom. But very selfishly, James and John were asking, hey, hey, can we be the, the number one of all the people that are with you in your kingdom? And of course, they're thinking about themselves. They, they're thinking about self first. And, and when the other disciples find out about this, they become indignant. Okay. Indignant that James and John would try to uh, one up them all and be closer to Jesus than all the rest of them. And so the essence of salvation for us is an about face from from our self-centeredness back to God-centeredness. Um, many of us live our lives writing, writing goals down on a piece of paper. OK, but even in writing our own goals down on our piece of paper, we come up with what we want to happen in our life. We ask God to bless it. We pursue something wholeheartedly instead of instead of uh, submitting ourselves to what God would want. Placing him at the, the center of our worship, we worship ourselves, pursue what we want wholeheartedly, and then we ask God to bless it. And that's really backwards from what we should do. Jesus calls us to turn from our selfish ways if we want to follow him. And so denying ourselves is the willingness to say no to yourself in order that you might say yes to Jesus. The first requirement is to deny yourself. The second is similar to it. Jesus says to take up your cross daily. Now, the, a reference to cross is a reference to crucifixion. And to, to have Jesus uh, just, just say this out in the open would have been shocking. It would have been a shocking metaphor for these disciples to hear Jesus say that to just to follow him, to, to be like him, to be close to him, to be his disciple, that they had to pick up a cross. Because this symbol of cross meant very much something different for these disciples in that day, first century world, than it does for us in our world. You know, today the cross is a, is a piece of jewelry. We wear earrings that have crosses on them. You might have a necklace. You know, a celebrity might put a T-shirt on. You know, I love, I love Jesus T-shirt. 
Some of y'all might have a I Love Jesus t-shirt. I'm not saying the t-shirt is wrong. This is our perspective of, of, of cross. It's a thing that we put on. A lot of times uh, a person may be going through a hard time and they'll say, you know, life is hard right now. I guess this is just my cross to bear. And they may be, they may be referring to an, an illness in their family. Uh, maybe a spouse lost a job. Something difficult has happened and they don't see a way out of it. And they liken it to a cross. That's not what a cross was for these disciples. For these disciples, the cross represented torture. It represented physical abuse. And honestly, it represented death. All these disciples had likely seen firsthand um, citizens in Rome lined up on the streets, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, blood uh, streaming down through those nails, dying a slow death with crowds jeering at them, mocking them with birds picking at them and eventually them dying a slow, painful death of asphyxiation. And so Jesus' reference to taking up the cross would undoubtedly have introduced much fear into these disciples' lives. And so here's what taking up your cross means, not just for these disciples, but but for us. Firstly, it means embracing God's will, no matter what. And that really is what Jesus did. Jesus came to bear a cross. It was his mission and it was his purpose. And so for us, whatever the mission that God would have for us would be our cross to bear. And the truth is, all of us will all of us aren't called to bear a a cross that's painful or, or that's horrid or that we dislike. Some of you may be called to a mission, a purpose of God that may be something that you absolutely love to do. But there are some of you in this room that God has called to endure something that may be hard for you to do, maybe even painful for you to do for the sake of Jesus Christ. I would say regardless of the assignment, whether it's, whether it's something that you love to do or something that's going to be very hard, thinking of being a, a missionary in, in, in an Islamic state and being submitted to, to ISIS and having the, the opportunity to stand up for Jesus or to deny him. That's what I'm talking about here. Regardless of the assignment that God would have you, taking up your cross means giving up your rights. It means determining to see your God-given mission through, being totally committed, being ready to live through suffering if need be. And for some of you, perhaps being ready to die for it. I think he's alluding to that. Secondly, taking up your cross means to identify with Jesus. As the disciples are following Jesus, he's saying they should expect to bear some kind of shame and rejection and possibly even death. That means that as a Christian, we can't escape the fact that we'll be mocked and rebuked and possibly even rejected for our faith. And what he's calling us to as we take up a cross is to is to not shy away from that, is to receive it, is to purposely identify with Jesus, even in suffering and rejection, to be so committed to God that we would do that. And lastly, taking up your cross means to die. It means to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and he bids him to die. I think the Christian life can be summed up in these words. It's all about it's all about how much you can die. Romans 6, 
says that baptism is this beautiful picture of us dying with Christ. It's a believer identifying in the, the person and the work of Jesus, his death on the cross in your place for your sin. And they're immersed in water. And as they go under the water, they are dead to their own sin. And the picture is that as they come up out of the water, they're being cleansed, forgiven of their sin, brought into newness of life and into resurrection with Jesus. Um, marriage a successful marriage is a picture of of dying, dying to yourself, dying to your wants. Larissa and I have great friends in North Carolina. We were uh, we were elders uh, at a church in North Carolina and uh, we were going to a party and we were riding with this this other couple who were also elders at the church going to a Christmas party. And uh, we admired this couple. They were like mentors to us. And uh, just in the midst of conversation, driving to the party, uh, we asked him, so, I mean, what's the secret of your marriage? You guys, uh, I, I know that, you know, the, I know that things aren't always just like happy and jovial for you. I mean, what's the secret of you living like, like we perceive you to be living as a married couple? And uh, the, the man's name was Jack, Jack Watts, Jack and, Jack and Peggy Watts. Jack says, well, Jeff, we just wake up every morning. He's a country boy. We just wake up every morning and we we uh, we decide who can um, our, our goal is to see who can die the most, who can die the most. And so that, that's for free for all you married people. Um, their secret to a successful marriage was who can die the most. And what he meant by that was die to having your way, die to um, all the ways that you demand in the marriage. Uh, demand that things are done to cater to you. And instead, you see you extend grace to the other person and you uh, you very much um, allow them to, to come first, to be first. Die to yourself. Who can die the most? This is what Galatians 2.20 means. Who can die the most? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me and life, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. If we would live life through the lens of this verse, Paul is saying I, I, in my union with Jesus Christ, it's as if I've died and I no longer live anymore. The Jeff that used to be no longer exists. Instead, the life that you see here is a life that I live through Christ. I live completely solely through him. The first requirement is that we deny ourselves. The second requirement is that we take up our cross. And thirdly, he says that that we are supposed to follow Jesus. I don't know who said this. Bonhoeffer likely said it, but many it's been attributed to many people. And so I won't I'll say this person is anonymous. But this quote is a famous quote. Christianity is not a set of teachings to understand. It's a person to follow. Christianity is not a set of teachings to understand. It is a person to follow, which helps us remind our remind ourselves that uh, this is not some ethereal idea or this aberration of a man that we're following. Jesus is a person and he's called us to follow him as a person. Firstly, this means that we follow Jesus with real tangible steps. Jesus, to those first disciples, gave real tangible commands, looking them in the face. They dropped what they were doing. And they followed him. And when Jesus calls us today, it's no less uh, a tangible command by his spirit that we perceive to follow him. 
And so Jesus, he calls us to and invites us to walk a narrow, exclusive road that eventually leads to the kingdom of God. And it's fair to say that those those tangible steps have to begin with faith. We don't see Jesus like those first disciples saw him face to face. But we do see Jesus through the through the eyes of the spirit of God that he gives us. He gives us with faith. To come to him to receive his grace and to walk with him. I think of Peter as as Peter was uh, in that storm and they saw Jesus coming, walking on the water. And Peter had uh, the wherewithal, the faith even to to call out to Jesus and ask him to allow him to come on the water with him. Jesus calls him, reaches out his hand. And Peter, what does he do? He steps out of the boat. And in that moment, what did, the Peter, what did Peter do? Peter, he expressed two things. Firstly, he expressed obedience. Jesus held out his hand and Peter was willing to take the step. Perhaps more importantly, Peter expressed faith. Faith that as he stepped out of the boat, this turbulent storm that he was experiencing on the boat, it was probably safer for him to be out on the water with Jesus. Isn't that true? Our tangible steps begin with faith. And I think as we begin to be obedient, we actually learn to be more faithful. Secondly, we follow a person, not a philosophy. The call of Jesus is not to a confession of faith, nor to an intellectual agreement with Bible doctrine. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to agree with what the Bible says about God. We are supposed to agree with that. But sometimes we can agree with what the Bible says and not have faith in the person to whom the Bible points to. There are many people that live a moral life, but they have no connection in relationship to the, the, the person that these morals are pointing to. And so the call of Jesus is to him himself. Jesus is very specific in what he tells us to do. He doesn't say follow some generic biblical principles or submit yourself to certain doctrine. Jesus doesn't present a plan for positive thinking or suggest seven simple steps to being a disciple. Jesus simply says, follow me. And when we follow Jesus, we follow a person. All right. So the rest, that's the meat of this passage. Jesus says, if you want to follow him, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And what Jesus does in the rest of these verses, verse 24 and on, he repeats himself. In fact, he gives three different renditions of what it looks like for you to 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 be a disciple, to follow him, to bear the cost of discipleship. He says it three different ways. Firstly, he says in verse 24 and 25 that to 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 save your life, you really have to lose it. Verse verse 24. So whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What Jesus says simply here is to say no to Jesus because you're afraid of missing out on life means that you're going to miss out on life. So at, at issue here is, is at, who is who is who has control of your life? And so if you are going to close your fist, white knuckle your life through and you're going to 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 keep hold of all those areas in your life that that you want to control. These are mine and these are I, no one's going to forbid me from living life this way, from doing these things. And no one can can you can't shy me away from this stuff. Then Jesus is saying what you're simply doing is you are rejecting him. You're, you're holding on to those areas of your life that, that, that you like to control, 
But in doing that, you're rejecting your submission to who God is and what his ways are and what he may want for your life. And in verse 25, he introduces this idea of risk. Verse 25, for where does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits him soul? And here's the risk. Jesus says it's a greater risk for you in holding on to your life than in giving your life to God for Jesus sake. What would be the point of holding on to money, houses, land and power, Jesus is saying, in the price for giving up your very soul? I think the truth is there's a lot of people in our world today that have power and affluence. And every day they make daily decisions to hold on to to those things, to those things that in this life make them powerful and influential and just people that like stuff. And in those daily decisions, they really are rejecting God himself, rejecting God and a moment's pleasure for the status that this life can bring. Hear me that I'm not saying we should be opposed to stuff. We need stuff. God gives us stuff as a blessing. It's it's a common grace of God to give us stuff to include money and things. But when we choose money and things and stuff over the pursuit of, as a pursuit of our lives, over a pursuit of, of Jesus, then we have chosen something that's going to cost us our soul. And that would be foolish. Verse 26, he changes the he changes the paradigm and he says, if you are ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. For whoever's ashamed of me, of my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. I think the truth is we all like affirmation. We like to be uh, we like to be comforted by um, people liking us and we're sensitive to how people respond to us. Nobody wants to be ridiculed or scorned. And yet every Christian, if he lets his faith be known at some point, is going to be rejected by somebody that doesn't like you or your faith. And we have to be ready for that. And so Jesus makes it clear that if we are ashamed of him before the world, he will be ashamed of us in the presence of God, the father. And those words should those words should affect us. Those words should burn in our minds. And this is the picture. It's like at the last day. Jesus comes. He's coming with a, a host of angels. And not only that, he's coming with God, the father himself. That's the picture he's painting in verse 26. And they come to you and they come before you and says, as you've done in this life, rejecting me, ashamed to associate with me. So me and my host will be ashamed of you. And no one wants I mean, no one in their right mind would want that to happen. So the question for us as we conclude this series is, I mean, how do we live this out? I mean, how do we how do we be a disciple? Specifically today, how do we count the cost of discipleship and live with the burden of that cost? Author John Walker, in his book, Costly Grace, where he uh, unfolds uh, much of what Bonhoeffer said uh, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says that we often assume Jesus is inviting us to walk alongside him as he does a bunch of good things. Feeding the poor, healing someone, being kind to to children. He says Jesus is doing that. He's inviting us to walk along. But rather, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he isn't asking for us to become nice or even do nice things. Nor does he simply mean to simply watch him do it. 
Jesus' invitation for us is to become like him. And there's a difference. Jesus is not simply inviting us to follow him. Jesus is inviting us to become like him. That over the course of our lives on this earth, we would become like Jesus in all the areas of your life. In every way that we see Jesus portraying who he is with the disciples in this book, he's he's inviting us to become like him in all those ways. And there are a number of ways. I'm going to list them for you here in a second. The, the, The number one of those ways is in his call. Jesus was called for a purpose, to to lay down his life, to come to earth, to live our life, to walk our roads, live in our skin, to eat our food, a condescending life from the life that he lived in eternity. He gave up all that he knew to, to tabernacle amongst us, and he fulfilled the mission of God on this earth, on our behalf. And our call is Jesus' call, not a call to die for the sins of people, but it is a call to reject this world for the world to come. To become like Jesus is to become like him in his obedience. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to to death, even death on a cross. Perhaps Jesus isn't calling you to die on a cross but he is calling you to to live a crucified life that you would set aside your needs, your wants and follow him with reckless abandon. To follow Jesus in every way there is possible to follow him. Jesus calls us to become like him in our character. And there's no better place to to see the the nuances of the character that God calls us to than the Beatitudes. That's one of the first things that Jesus did in, in his ministry. Remember the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who are humble, for they'll inherit the whole earth. Blessed are those who hunger for thirst and justice, for they'll be satisfied. Blessed are those who are merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they'll see God. Blessed are the peaceful, for they'll be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And in all of these, Jesus was inviting us to to not see life through our own eyes, but to see life through the lens of of his eyes. And, and, And I'll just take one example. When he says, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Was was he actually asking us to take up a, a stance of grief? As it, I mean, as, as a character trait, and that's going to define who we are. The, the nuance here is Jesus wanted us to, to not be happy. He wants us, he wants us to see what he sees when he sees the world. And that should, that should address our character. And what Jesus sees when he sees our world as God is a world that's uh, like a ship that's about to sink. And he wanted us to mourn for the world that is and mourn for the world that is to come. That's the character Jesus wants us to put on. And we can say the same thing about righteousness. And when we become like Jesus in his righteousness, we remember that our righteous life flows from Jesus life. Our virtue comes from his virtue. When we're in union with Jesus, he gives us with his righteousness because we have none of our own. Jesus was a a man of of discipline. 
and we become like him in spiritual disciplines. Jesus snuck away in the early hours of the morning to pray. Jesus was a man of solitude, of serenity. He observed the Sabbath as the law required. And we would do likewise to become like Jesus. Jesus was one of the most compassionate people on the earth during his day, showing compassion to those who were hurt and lame and sick. Luke 4 says that his very mission was to set at liberty those who were held captive. When we become like Jesus in his wisdom, in essence, we he's calling us to be doers of his word. Not just hears, we, we hear God's word and we obey. And of course, in this passage, Jesus is welcoming us to become like him in suffering. Lastly, discipleship is about the practice of surrender. And I mean, that's really what it boils down to. You ever, you ever see those old Westerns? My mom used to look at Westerns. And uh, what used to strike me is, uh, I mean, I used to never like this part because it meant, you know, a guy holding up a white flag. It means he was giving up. I mean, I, I give up. I, I can't do it anymore. You win. That, and oftentimes that meant the bad guys were winning. Right. And this is in us. We don't like to surrender because it, I mean, we don't like to give up. Primarily because we don't, you know, we're, we're selfish. We don't want to lose our way. We don't want to lose ground. It's prideful to have to give up. But God has called us to, to wave a white flag. And they give up. We're not giving up to an enemy. We're giving up to to God himself. And our practice of surrender is this moment by moment, lifelong obedience to Jesus. That's what he's calling us to in terms of our commitment to him. We can't call ourselves disciples of Jesus without this daily obedience to him. And this is what this looks like. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, sometimes the wherewithal to do what you've asked us to do is not in us because we're sinful. And so as sinful people, we come acknowledging our sin to you and pray that as we repent of our sin, of our inability to follow you, that you would Forgive us, cleanse us from our unrighteousness. More importantly, Lord God, that you would gift us with your grace to do what we can't do in any of our own strength. The miracle of following you is that the very thing that you called us to do, we need your help. So Jesus, help us. Be an ever-present help in our time of need. Help us in the specific way that we're asking right now that you would come and Help us simply to wake up every day in obedience to your word, that we would put on as a garment grace and truth, walking with Jesus in the little moments of life. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be obedient to your word, that it would watch over us and guard us, incline us toward you. Lord, we pray in the likes of Luke 9 that you would help us even when it's hard to deny ourselves, to put our wishes aside, to take our, the, the, the crown of our throne off, lay it to the side and submit ourselves to you with knees bowed, that we would be willing to take up our cross even when it's hard and we would follow. Help us to be followers of you, disciples, people who will call after your name. We pray that's in Jesus' great name.
Amen. And amen.